Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Adam Stern, MD, is a psychiatrist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He has written extensively about his experience as a physician, including in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the American Journal of Psychiatry. He lives with his family near Boston. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Committed Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training. It's so great to connect with you. Thank you for having me. No, this is such a pleasure. I sort of eagerly dove into this book. I'm so interested in psychology, psychiatry, and I actually worked on an inpatient unit once myself in the psychiatric unit in Westchester. Anyway, so I came into it with like super excitement and interest and was just like devouring it. So thank you for this fantastic read and sort of insight into not only you, but what it's like to be in in a residency program and on all of that. So anyway, I really enjoyed it. Why don't you tell listeners a little bit about why you decided to write this book and, and the time period it covered and all of that? 
Sure thing. Yeah. So I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always written. I, I, I suppose it's a little bit hard to know what defines a writer versus someone who writes and nobody reads their stuff or <laughs> or very few read read their stuff. But so I've I've been writing my whole life, and it wasn't until actually sort of this uh, a few years ago, some circumstances changed. I was actually diagnosed with cancer, like many millions of Americans out there. And so for the first time in my life, I actually was writing from the perspective of not just a physician as I am, but also a patient and the intersection of those things. And I found that self-disclosure in this radical kind of way was really powerful. For whatever reason, it was finding my, my pieces were finding homes and really well-read you know, outlets. And um, one of those pieces got the attention of a, a literary agent who offered me the opportunity to make a proposal. And when we sat down to really think about what kind of book could I write that's never been written or that you know really would captivate readers, the thing that really jumped out at me was this, this ability or this opportunity to be able to talk about how does someone go from a really eager, wide-eyed medical student, medical school graduate to what we all think of as this sort of strange cerebral psychiatrist kind of thing. There's got to be a journey there. And when I thought back to my own journey in residency, it wasn't something very mysterious or or deep or anything. It was really filled with self-doubt, things that uh, everybody can sort of connect to, self-doubt, learning, connecting with your peers, relying on each other. And I just so happened to meet my wife in training and we had friends that life, you know, that have become now future lifelong friends. And, you know, so I thought I can tell this story in a way that I don't think's ever been told. And hopefully I can make it interesting for the reader by by especially even, even people who aren't necessarily interested in medical memoirs. They might be interested in the stories behind the, the people in the book and the sort of interpersonal drama that I hope comes through. Well, I don't, I don't feel like it was overly medicalese in any way at all. I think it was very approachable. And a lot of it was about you. I mean, which was great, you know, because you really got us into your life and your head. And, you know, even till like the very end, you were still doubting if you had been matched by mistake to the Harvard program. I was like, no, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have imposter syndrome, even what you just said about being a writer. I mean, you can be a writer without being published. It doesn't take uh, the publication to make you that way necessarily. I think the more that I achieve, the less I, the more I realize that that the achievements have nothing to do with the value of who you are as a person, you know, and so it's a sad thing that it's taken as many years as it has for me as an individual to come to that realization. But it's something that I feel more and more strongly every year. You mentioned as part of your, you know, self-doubt, if you will, that you didn't have the skills for memorization that so many of your peers did and how you felt like that sort of shifted you even into a certain course of psychiatry where you didn't have to use that rote memorization as well. And I've always wondered, like, how do doctors keep the entire, like everything in their heads, all of the, every single thing that could go wrong with a person? I mean, I I don't know. How How did the people do it who... How did the other people do it? Like, what did they say? They just naturally were able to memorize. I, I feel like it's really I think certain. Certain people in my medical school class just have this this gift to be able to take in huge amounts of information and then be able to represent it on the exam, et cetera, et cetera. What I would say though that I think is important is that for any young young listeners out there, people interested in medicine or any kind of field where you're going to be studying a lot and trying to memorize and learn material, no matter if you picture yourself 10 years from now, you're very likely not going to be needing the details of everything that you've memorized for the exam 
really the education is all about learning how to learn and and then how to apply those lessons, right? And so if you think of any of my peers that went into anesthesiology or radiology or any form of internal medicine, they're not they they remember the language of psychiatry. They remember the language of another field and how it fits in the context of medicine, but they don't necessarily remember all the details that they memorized for those exams. Another part I found really interesting was how your own depression sort of ebbed and flowed with the with the tides of the training and how you weren't alone in that, of course, with all of the the triggers essentially that were presented all of the time and particularly during the loss of one of your patients, which really obviously hit home as I'm, you know, which, you know, which I understood. I'm sorry, I can't get a sentence out today, but how did you cope with that? And how has it sort of followed you now, right? Like, how do you manage, I guess my question really is, how do you manage your own emotions, which of course ebb and flow sometimes at higher and lower peaks and valleys when you are your job is to take care of other people's mental health? That's a great question. I think that one of the challenges that you, one of the skills that you have to sort of cultivate over the course of any kind of medical training is the ability to compartmentalize because, and you have to do that on both sides of the fence. So you have to be able to focus on your kids and your family and the things that you care about in your life when you're at home and not not be spending as much of that mental energy worrying about what's happening back at the hospital. At the same time, when you're at the hospital, you need to have faith that your kids are doing okay and you're not and, and everything's going okay in the rest of your life and focus just on the patient. And and doing those things, it doesn't come naturally because our, our minds are are sort of naturally sort of inclined to be a mishmash of all kinds of thoughts and worries and concerns. And it all adds up to a certain degree of anxiety. So it came with practice. And then, you know, as I wrote about in the book, being able to see someone objective that can sort of tell you this is, you know, in medicine, there's a phrase called negative outcomes. And every field has negative outcomes. Surgery, medicine, psychiatry has negative outcomes. If you're a family medicine doctor and you treat someone from the time they're born all the way till the they may pass away, eventually all of your patients will pass away and, and that will be a negative outcome. That kind of idea is sort of foreign to someone in psychiatry because in psychiatry, we have negative outcomes. People die by suicide in psychiatry. People end up in, in the hospital with very serious illness. And at the same time, it's never something that we want or expect. And so you have to be able to live in that world and not have it devour your own, the rest of your, your world. And that ability to compartmentalize came with experience and also a little bit of training. I thought one of the lines that stayed with me was when you first encountered this dramatic scene with schizophrenic patient and they had to, you know, tie the patient down and you were really sort of traumatized right at the beginning. And, and the, the nurse said, don't worry, doctor, you'll get used to it. And you were like, I don't want to get used to it. Like this should always be horrible. And mm. I think that's so important. It's such a valuable lens, right? This, these are people and people's feelings. And I don't know. I, I thought no, that you're was right. really- you're a hundred percent right. And 
even beyond feelings, it's people's lives and you, we can become numb, you know, any, Mm -hmm. in, in any field, we can become numb to the humanity behind whatever it is that we're trying to do. Right. And so in psychiatry, there's a lot of misery and pain and suffering. And you do also have to sometimes work to, while at this, while on the one hand you're compartmentalizing to protect yourself and your family and the rest of your world, you're also you have to work to remain vulnerable with your patients, because if you're not empathic with them, you're not going to be doing as good of a job with them and trying to to care for them, and it's a challenge. I feel like you charted the evolution of your ability to do that so well. By the time you got to the anorexic patient at the end of the book and you had a chance to kind of redo and start from scratch with a new patient and the moment when you were smiling and she's like, why are you smiling? And you're like, am I? I'm just ready to get to work. That was so great. I was just so, I I don't know. It was very inspiring the way you you made it through all of this and all the work and everything. I just have to ask, like, what's up with your brother these days? Because I feel like I got very interested in him in the book. All right. Well, first of all, I'm going to tell him that, you know, the the biggest book fluencer in the world is asking about him. He'll be so (laughs) excited about that. Please. Hardly, but thank you. No, he will. He will be. He will be. He'll be super excited. My brother's doing great. He's a cardiologist. He actually ended up working in the very same office in the same system down on on Long Island that my uh, father works in. So they have this wonderful thing going where they get to, you know, work together and and even cover each other's patients. And they have that. And it's something that I love for them. And, you know, my brother and I, my brother's my best friend and always has been. And so I'm just so happy for him and and his family. And they're, they're just doing great. Awesome. So neat that you ended up in med school at the same time. That's so... That was, that was really... (laughs) funny, strange, sort of going through it in parallel. It was this, it opened up this degree of sibling rivalry that I never in a million years would have imagined. <laughs> yeah. I hope my kids don't end up in med school starting at the same time. I mean, I don't think any of my kids will end up in med school, so it won't be an issue, but. Well, if you, if you, if you want them to go, then tell them not to go. And if you, if you yes. don't want them to go, then maybe tell them it's a great idea. And, and, and you know, that's how it worked out in our household anyway. Interesting. Yes. Okay. I'm open to any parenting tips you want to share on any, on any front. (laughs) You know, suicide also played a role in the book and not just in your patients, but one of your cohort members also you referenced at the end, which I'm so sorry for your loss. That's terrible. You know, I've lost a, a really close friend to suicide as well. And many people have at this point, I think by the time you get to, I mean, I'm 45, I don't know how old you are, but like at some point it, 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 it touches so many people. Mm-hmm. How do you, when you're going, you know, through both your clinical life and personal life, how do you kind of make sense of that and sort of carry on the knowledge that especially with patients, that's like, a negative outcome to be avoided? And how do you deal with it in your personal life too? Like, how do you reconcile those, those two? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, so I think my instinct and most people's instinct, especially in the field, is almost always to try to dissect it and figure out where did it go wrong or how could I, what did I miss? How could I have steered things in a different direction? And, and those instincts are usually not adaptive. They're not helpful because a, they're just second guessing things that have changed. You, you know, ideally you probably made the right choices when they happened, you know, and, and B, you know, these are very often people who die by suicide are the last people that you would necessarily have guessed would. And so psychiatrists are charged with this terrible, enormous responsibility of trying to predict suicide. So if someone comes through the emergency department, we do a risk assessment and try to figure out, you know, I'll, I'll just give you a very concrete example in, in the modern age. A kid at college says that they posts online somewhere something vaguely suicidal. Um, just, you know, something very, very, very vague, but clearly hinting at suicide. And that person comes into the ER and they end up seeing a psychiatrist. That psychiatrist has to somehow figure out, is this person a risk or not? And the answer is obviously there's a degree of risk and there's a degree of unknown, right? And so we're not very good at predicting these things. We have certain modifiable risk factors that we can do. So things like removing lethal means. If someone's a gun owner, you can try to you know, help reduce the risk by, by protecting them from their own access to, to that kind of thing. Things like substance use are, are increased risk factors. But then there are certain things that are totally non-modifiable. Someone's, you know, male gender over age 65, past suicide attempts, family history of suicide attempts. These are all things that either they happened or, or they didn't happen. And they play into this sort of overall decision that you're trying to make. I don't even remember the original question, but but I, I feel I like I've, I've just been talking about suicide for long enough. I'll just pause. and Okay. And all right. <laughs> I'm so sorry about your own cancer journey. Can you share a little more about that or what you're comfortable talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I've been dealing with this on uh, January 19th. It'll be four years. And I feel incredibly fortunate. You know, I was very unlucky to get this uh, it was kidney cancer. It was a pretty large thing. As many kidney cancers go, they're they're sort of quiet. They don't cause a lot of symptoms until they get to be a problem problematic. And so, as it works, I you know I happen to have access to some of the best care in the entire world, and I've worked pretty hard to put myself in a position to then thankfully be very lucky. So you know, I, next week actually I'm going to have my sixth surgery since this diagnosis happened. Oh my gosh. Every time one of these things, and I've had I think three different systemic therapies, one of which was like in an almost ICU kind of setting. So it hasn't been easy, but in that span of four years, I have 
had a second child. I have written this book. I've written essays that ended up in the New York Times and the New England Journal of Medicine. I have taken all these opportunities. I've gotten to see you know, my, at the time, one-year-old now grow up into a, a five-year-old and learn who he is. And, and I can't wait to see who he is at six and hopefully at 16, you know? And, and so it's been an incredible journey of, you know, unknowns, but trying to become okay with the unknowns, trying to live your life despite the unknowns. And I'm just so thankful that I've had that opportunity. A lot of the people who were diagnosed right around the same time as me haven't been so lucky. And it's been eye-opening. I wouldn't wish it upon anyone, but there are certain aspects of it that I think have been insightful for me. Are you glad in this case that you you have all your medical training or would it be easier not to know? It's a, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you know, I can read the literature. I can, I follow when there's, um, you know, the largest cancer conferences and all the researchers get together and new data is released. I follow it just the same way that I think a lot of oncologists do. And I can understand it at the exact same time. You know, I know I, I can read those survival curves as well as anyone. I know exactly how, you know, what the data says and uh, what the limitations are. So, you know, at this moment, my disease is not curable for more than 90% of patients who have it. So I like to be a realist about these things and a realist that holds on to hope. You know, th those are the two principles that I carry with me all the time. And so far it's served me really well, I think. Wow. Well, I will share my hope and, you know, all the good wishes. Wow. That's a lot to do on top of being ill, <laughs> like all these things. You could, it's hard enough for people to write a book when their life is going great. Do you feel like it really helped you? Like, do you feel like all the writing has been therapeutic for you? Yeah, that's actually why I write to begin with. You know, I started off by talking about, am I a writer? Am I not a writer? You right. know, that kind of thing. And I think that I've always written because I am generally an introverted person and I sometimes can feel overwhelmed with the world around me. And writing's always, since I was a little boy, writing has been a way for me to just sort of like process the world. And when you get hit with, you know, the asteroid landing on your front door of cancer, you know, suddenly there's a lot to process. And so I started writing these essays. The very first one was about this idea of at that moment, my five-year survival rate was like 50-50 essentially. And that was before we knew, you know, various things about how it had spread. And so I, I wrote this essay about like the cruelty of a 50-50 survival rate. It's not it's not 90% and it's not 10%. It's, it's a coin flip and you may as well flip a coin, that, that kind of idea. And by writing that essay, I was able to take these emotions that I was having and sort of articulate them. And then, and then once it got out into the world and actually was put out on Boston's NPR radio, I got to go to the studio and record it. And, and my voice was out to the world people, what I love is it's almost like a kind of sonar writing. If you write and, and people actually do read what you've written, it can sort of bounce back and you realize that you're connecting with people you've never even met with. And one of those, one of those things is the ability to connect, I should say, is just really something that I, I hold on to very tightly. I love that writing as sonar. I haven't heard that before. I love that. That's amazing. So what next? Now you're doing publicity for this book. You're a psychiatrist, you, your kids, whatever. Like, <laughs> what are your hopes and dreams for the next little stretch? More writing, yeah. more essays? What are you up yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I would love for someone... To someone with a really a great skill set and an interest to turn this book into a movie 
or a TV show. And I'd love to be a consultant on that. That would be like, <laughs> that would be like my dream where I just get to sort of show up and talk about like, you know, what it's really like. And then other people do the hard work of making it good. That would be awesome. But, you know, generally, you know, I, 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 after the book came out, I spent a number of months working on something just specifically for my two boys mm-hmm. that I had bound privately. And it's just sort of Aww. in yeah. Nice. And and I, I wanted to do a real, I've been working on it for a long time and I wanted to finally sort of put a bow on it and then I can get started on volume two. You know, it doesn't mean that the story's over, but I wanted them to have this thing that I had written just for them. So there, there's that. And I'm also just thinking of, I have an outline of uh, a really, what I think is a really cool idea for a novel. And I'll just, I, it's only an outline. So I'll just give you the very, very, very broadest idea of it, if I may. Please. Is like from, I, I'm not that creative. So I'll just make the protagonist a psychiatrist like me. But from that perspective, dealing with the aftermath of like what happens in a small town, if everyone's internet browser history was like, published suddenly like online available for everyone to to see. And so almost like everyone's secrets being suddenly sort of revealed to each other in a way. I think that that idea is so, has so much potential as a a, a work of fiction. Not to, you know, pull the wind out of your sails here or whatever. There Uh is a book similar to that that Uh I've covered. It's okay. It's not exactly the same. Every book is different. Sarah Shepard's book and I'm blanking on the name. It's one word. It's like a long word, probably like eight letters. I'll look it up and send it to you. But it's where a campus, there's like a campus-wide issue with the servers and all, everything becomes public. Oh, Not the wow. browser so, history. It's more the emails. But as a comp, it would be a good, good yeah. comp for your book. Yeah. I'm going to have to read that. And But yes, browser history would be, I'm always so worried about that. Everything I enter, I'm like, what if this ends up somewhere? You know, what does right. this say about me? It's so, because yeah. We, we search the strangest things and, and there's no context, right? Yeah. In our heads, there's context, but for everyone else, there's no context. Yeah. No, Anyways, I love that. I guess That's a great idea. I'll have to read that and make sure I, I do something. It's, totally it's no, it's, it, no, it's totally different. And it, yeah, it's definitely more email based now that I'm remembering. Reputation. It's called Reputation. Okay. All right. Okay. Reputation. Everyone yeah. go out and buy Reputation. And um, I, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> okay. So it was nine letters, not eight letters. Anyway, do you have plans for a podcast? Because not to sound weird, but you have like a really great podcast voice and demeanor. I feel like you should do some sort of podcast and you have this great sound, whatever. So I don't know, throw that in the, in the bag of ideas, unless you Thank have you one so and I don't much. know about it. I don't have one, but I'll, I one, one bit I'll tell you is that one of my favorite parts of doing this book was the ability to go, the opportunity to go to a studio in Cambridge, Mass., which is like a rock and roll studio, but that's where I recorded the audiobook. And I've never done anything like really. Like, everyone tells me they listen to the book. I love it even more because it's, I feel like I was like just on a long car ride with them telling them about my journey over these four years in psychiatric residency. So that's, that's one, but I appreciate that. Ne- never done a pod, never, uh, you know, had aspirations to do my own podcast. Awesome. All right. Well, do you have any advice for aspiring authors? My advice is to write the thing that you want to write and for you, ideally. And so, you know, writing for other people, usually not a good idea, 
But if you write something and even if no one else reads it, you're happy that you wrote it or that you feel like it's been a productive use of your energy and your headspace, then do it. I never really in a million years imagined that this kind of book would happen and that I'd be able to do it. And so you just never know what can happen. If you take away, if you're somehow able to overcome the fear of trying something and it not living up to some idealized version of it that you have, then then the sky's the limit and you can achieve all kinds of things. So that's my advice to anyone out there. Take a shot, you know, do your best. If it's something that you want to do, go for it and be proud of it no matter what happens with it. Love it. Well, if you ever want to brainstorm what podcast you should do, let me know. I feel well, like you should put add that to your repertoire. If I if I may be so bold, you know, once I made it into the the Zibby orbit <laughs> and I became aware of all the all the things going on, I became aware of the viral sensation sex talk with with Zibby and, <laughs> and of all of your work. That's the one that like I on my commute to work and I can't not listen to it. Oh yay! It's a, it, and I, you, it, so one of the recent ones you guys were talking about the variety of audience members that you have, like people are, and I was like, yeah, like I, I you know, add you know, like Harvard psychiatry to the list. Like we're listening, you know. So That's amazing! Oh my gosh, I'm going to tell Tracy. That's please great. do. That's the problem with podcasting is I'm not the problem, but. You know, you just never know who's listening. You never know who you're, who hears, who is it, who it's, I mean, every so often people email or DM or say something, but yeah, it's mostly like I just sit here at my desk and wonder, I mean, I see the numbers, so I know people are listening, but you just never know. So anyway, thanks for telling me that. We have so much fun doing it and yeah, it's such a blast. I laugh so hard, so... <laughs> anyway, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for coming on and feel free to stay in touch and, you know, best of luck with everything and I'll be rooting for you. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.